I would like to pray uh, for Lindsay before she teaches. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for Lindsay. I thank you for the gifts that you have given to her. I thank you that she is a student of your word, that she loves your word because she wants to know you, the God who has revealed yourself to us in your word. So Lord, I just pray that you just pour out your grace on Lindsay as she teaches. And Lord, I pray for us to have hearts that are open to hear the encouragement and the challenge that she will bring to us tonight through these three parables on prayer. So Lord, we thank you in advance for what you will do through Lindsay's teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, this week we'll be looking at some parables from the book of Luke with the common theme of prayer. Since we're attempting a flyover of three parables, we'll cover a lot of ground. But I hope you can especially hold on to Jesus' teaching about how we should approach the Lord in prayer based on who he is. And I also hope you'll remember what Jesus tells us to ask for. As I prayed for you each week, God has brought to mind the words from James 1.22, which exhorts us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So my prayer for this time is that God's word would shape us to be more Christ-like in prayer for our joy and his glory. To give you some context, we'll start with the conversation between Jesus and his disciples right before he told our first parable. You can follow along with me on the handout, or you can turn in your Bible to Luke 11, verse 1. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. You might have memorized a slightly longer version of this prayer from Matthew, but I hope you'll keep it in mind. Parts of this pattern from Jesus show up in each parable, highlighting the unity of Jesus' teaching on prayer. You can find the next portion, verses 5 through 13, in your workbook too. Verse 5 starts, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. In order to help them and us, Jesus has set up a relatable situation. Someone had to receive an unexpected guest, and they were not ready. We can see, even if we don't know anything about the cultural expectations of this time, that the host has weighed his options. He considered it better to wake his friend's whole family than to let his guest go hungry. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus had just given the disciples a pattern of asking for daily bread. According to a couple commentaries, the three loaves were like little dinner rolls. It was just enough for one meal. So he wasn't asking for a lot, but he felt he needed it badly. This setup helps us understand something that you'll see in all three of the parables on prayer. The characters are in desperate need of help. The story continues in verse 7. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Jesus clarifies the reason this man got help. It is not because they were close friends who have a history of being there for each other. This man got bread because he dared to knock on the front door at a maddeningly inconvenient hour. Not only that, he apparently kept knocking after an initial rebuff, which helps us understand the point of the parable. We should be bold as we approach the Lord in prayer. I used the word bold, but you'll see the word impudence in verse 8. Other English versions translate this as shameless, persistent, or even audacious. They all have connotations that indicate an almost inappropriate boldness. But Jesus recommends this posture in prayer. He is not offended by desperate pursuit. He welcomes it. This led me to wonder why we might not tend toward this approach. I think there are a few reasons. One, it could be that we don't feel needy. Sometimes our prayerlessness betrays an attitude of independence. I've got this. Perhaps we assume we know where our daily bread is coming from. It is easy for me to forget the truth of Colossians 1.17, that it is he who holds all things together, including me and my supper plans. Pride might make us think we don't need God's help. Or maybe you're a little more realistic about your abilities, but you don't think you should bother God. Perhaps you feel embarrassed by your neediness, as if it were silly to ask God about something so small. After all, he's running the whole universe. Sometimes we resonate with Psalm 8:4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? But that's the point of that verse. He does care. He wants you to bring him the burdens of your heart. Or maybe we don't think prayer is worth it. It feels emotionally expensive to be honest about pain or unmet desire or fear. We're not sure he's listening, or we're not convinced prayer makes a difference. Whatever the reason you don't turn to God for help, you should know Jesus does not recommend uh, well, he's in control of everything, so I guess I'll just sit here and watch, sort of attitude. He commands us to approach our Heavenly Father with a shameless, bold persistence. Jesus directly stated this in verse 9. You can read along. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. We learned a little bit more about how to pray from these threefold commands. One commentary I read pointed out that in the original Greek, the verb tense is ongoing or continual. Jesus commands constant prayer. In these, you can hear again the hints of persistence. Jesus also highlights the divinely appointed cause-effect relationship. God delights to use prayer as the means to his ends. If you resonate with that third reason, feeling skeptical in your heart, thinking, I'm just not really sure it's worth the effort, you can see it right there. Six times 
Jesus highlights the effectiveness of prayer. Now, anyone who has tried praying for very long has run into a reality which seems opposite these statements. What about a five-year-old girl who sincerely asks God for a dog for a whole month? She was shameless and bold, not to mention persistent, because that's an eternity for a five-year-old. You don't have to be very old before you figure out that verses 9 and 10 do not mean God is compelled to grant your every wish. After observing a three-year-old's nightly request for a dinner of ice cream, we might even be willing to admit that would be a bad idea. But what about when we ask for healing in bodies and relationships or an end to other kinds of suffering? This is a present reality for many of us. Jesus knew we would pound heaven's doors with some requests and wonder at what seemed like silence or difficult answers. So he reassured us with the character of God. Remember, he just taught them to address God as Father when they pray. Listen to his next words, starting in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In order to shamelessly audaciously, boldly, persist in prayer, you need to know who's listening. Jesus gives our hearts an anchor of truth in the storm. God is a good father. That's a helpful truth to speak to yourself and your brothers and sisters when the answers don't come in the time or form you hoped for. Following that triple command to ask, seek, and knock, Jesus gave a three-layered comparison. If we compare the friend to a human father, we understand that a dad's love would motivate a greater responsibility, investment, and inclination to answer a child's request. A good dad not only takes care of what he should, but delights to give his kids what they need. Jesus went on to a third level of comparison, though. He reminded us that our Heavenly Father is better than an earthly father. He is perfect and holy, knowing and loving you better than anyone else. After we are reminded of God's character, Jesus takes this tender-hearted situation and applies a new lens. His commentary on the parable doesn't end with, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask for them? He assumes good gifts, and again, answers with far more wisdom, patience, power, and care than even an earthly father. Instead, he compares lesser to greater one more time. Look at the last half of verse 12. Notice that this verse finishes, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Besides a tendency not to seek the Lord with the shameless, bold persistence, we might aim too low as we pray. Yes, ask for daily bread, but ask for more too. Be so shameless and bold that you pursue something greater, something eternal. Jesus wants you to ask for the Holy Spirit. If you seek that gift, you will have the power and presence of God at work in you. You will have the gifts of Galatians 5, through 23, 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How different would our lives be if we got up in the morning and asked for the Holy Spirit to fill us with a supernatural amount of anything on that list? You'll remember back to the Lord's Prayer. The first two requests lift our eyes to something greater than our daily bread. Jesus teaches us first to pray that God would be glorified. That's what hallowed be your name means. And then for the coming of his kingdom. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to give glory to God and advance his kingdom. The next story from Jesus revisits the idea of bold, shameless persistence from a slightly different angle. To find this parable, we jump ahead to Luke 18. Just before this, Jesus spoke to some Pharisees and his disciples about the coming kingdom. His audience was full of Jews, groaning under oppressive Roman rulers. They chafed under corrupt government and culture that surrounded them. They hated paying Roman taxes, which supported pagan worship and evil leaders. They hoped Jesus would lead a revolution, bring justice, and end the difficulty of Jewish life in the Roman Empire. So they asked when and where Jesus would make his move to establish the new kingdom. If you know the arc of redemptive history, you know that Jesus had much bigger plans. He did not confine his kingdom to one earthly empire or even one millennium. Instead, he hinted at the difference between their expectation and God's plan. Before the next parable, he warned them to be ready for the day when justice would be finally and fully served. Knowing that they were eager to see the coming kingdom, Jesus again turned their attention to prayer. Let's read Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our next needy character is a woman who would have been widely recognized for her powerless place in society. As a widow, she had lost the person who would advocate for her. On top of the burdens of widowhood, she received injustice from an adversary, and the judge refused to help. To really drive home the despicable nature of the judge, Jesus lets us hear his own confession that he won't be moved by God's standard or any sense of basic human dignity. He only looks out for himself. The turn of this story depends on one special quality in the widow, bold persistence. She is so annoying (laughs) that the judge, who doesn't care about God or other people, will order justice so that he gets relief. The widow is so focused on her goal 
that this powerful judge is feeling battered by her continual approach. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? The words aren't the same, but it does have the same tone with strong negative connotations to drive the point home. This parable is no mystery to the modern reader because the author told us Jesus's point. He wants people to engage in hopeful, persistent prayer. Verses seven and eight give us helpful points for application of this parable. Again, Jesus argues from lesser to greater. He points out that if the unjust judge serves justice because it's more annoying not to do so, how much more will God ensure that justice is served? The one who defines justice will certainly accomplish it. Yet Jesus knew we would need the encouragement of this parable. Injustice in this world is often a point that pushes people away from God. They see oppression and pain and think God must not really be good or powerful. Jesus pushes back on that. He states that God will give justice to his elect. He will set things right and bring an end to evil. Jesus did not want us to despair. He tells us he won't delay long. He'll give justice speedily. Isn't speedily an interesting word to put in there? The God who works in a timeline marked by millennia used the word speedily. The Greek word is also used in Revelation 22:7, when Jesus talks of his second coming. The text is sometimes translated, and behold, I am coming speedily. God's timeline is different from ours, but we can rest assured that God has a plan to deal with injustice. At the end of verse 8, Jesus asked a rhetorical question. Will the Son of Man, that's the name Jesus used for himself, find faith on earth when he comes? The implication is that it will require faith to persevere until justice is finally executed. Faith is the hopeful trust in God and his good timeline, even when it feels long from a human perspective. This is Jesus's reassurance. There will not be an extended delay until he comes. He won't let us suffer too long under hard circumstances caused by injustice. He wants us to persist in prayer so that we may be among the faithful when he comes again. This parable is Jesus's call to pray with bold, shameless persistence looking forward to the coming kingdom. When you groan because it seems like evil is winning, take your longing for justice and translate it to bold, persistent prayer for Jesus's return. In the next parable, Jesus spoke to a particular group of people. Read with me from verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus' audience here were likely Jews or people who were very familiar with the Jewish practices of worship. They would have had more context for this story than you or I do. They would have been familiar with the routine of sacrifices made in obedience to God's commands. They would have known that people prayed at the temple after daily offerings of lambs and goats. The sacrifices represented an atonement for sin, which allowed sinful people to approach a holy God. Jesus' audience would also have been familiar with the two men in this parable. They would have known that going up to the temple to pray was a normal activity for a Pharisee. You see, Pharisees were the Jewish, Jewish religious superstars of their day. They were so concerned about righteousness that they made up their own extra laws to follow. You can hear him present his resume of over and above holiness. This Pharisee was talking to the God of the whole universe, but he was actually most impressed with himself. He also spoke of how grateful he was to be better than a bunch of conspicuous sinners. Perhaps his listeners started to feel a bit convicted when Jesus spoke about the disdain this Pharisee had for others. Maybe they started to recognize that they too were comparing themselves to other sinners instead of God's standard of righteousness. The other man in this story is a tax collector. Tax collectors were especially despised because they worked for the Romans, taking money from the Jews. It would have been abnormal for a tax collector to come to the temple to pray. According to historians, tax collectors were usually not even allowed to enter Jewish places of worship. This man, though, had recognized his sin and knew he needed to meet with God. He was so overcome with the awful reality of his situation that he beat his chest in a physical expression of his sorrow. He knew he could not make up for the sins he had committed. He knew his only hope was to plead for mercy. Jesus' listeners would have expected the Pharisee to be the hero of this story. They were probably shocked when Jesus said it was the tax collector who went away justified. In case you've never heard this word before, to be justified means to be declared righteous before God. With this parable, Jesus exposed a lie we are all prone to believe. It's easy to think that we could be good enough for salvation. It's more comfortable to lower the standard, conveniently choosing the obvious sinners for a comparison game. Do we excuse our own sin or pretend it's no big deal? Do we treat others with contempt? We would do well to check our own hearts when we hear about this self-deceived man. The two men had a very different accounting of where they stood with the Lord. The Pharisee felt no need for mercy and forgiveness because he rested on his own righteousness. But the tax collector had done the math correctly. He could not cover his own debt of sin. He needed help from someone else. He needed forgiveness. This is the fourth echo from the Lord's Prayer. Jesus shows us our need for the mercy of forgiveness. Those sacrifices I mentioned earlier pointed toward forward to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We are justified by trust in Jesus' covering for our sin. We cannot earn salvation by our good works. Good works do always accompany 
real faith, but they are only evidence of that faith, flowing out of gratitude and trust. They are not the basis for our salvation. Our own lack of righteousness should make us humble. If we take this parable to heart, we will cultivate a daily habit of repentance, asking God for mercy. We'll also encourage others to look to Jesus for salvation, not resting on their own works. We'll point others to Jesus, the only one who justifies, so that they too may have entrance into the kingdom of God. I was surprised by the twin recommendations of persistent boldness and humility. They seem almost opposite, but they have a common motivation of desperate need. In the text immediately following this parable, Jesus said, Let the children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We don't usually aspire to childlikeness, but Jesus recommended it. Children are naturally aware of their humble dependence. They assume their parents care. They ask, what's for supper? Because they know their parents will provide. They say to their siblings, I'm going to tell daddy when he gets home. Because they know parents administer justice. And when kids find themselves in a mess, they run to mom and dad, trusting them to untangle, clean up, and cover any loss incurred. That line of address in the Lord's Prayer, Father, has sweet implications. These parables recommend a dependent heart, looking to the Father, Heavenly Father in prayer. Jesus tells you to persistently, boldly, and humbly approach the one source who can meet every need, your daily bread, spiritual gifts, justice, and mercy. Jesus invites you to figuratively tap on the shoulder of God Almighty, creator, owner, and sovereign over heaven and earth. What an invitation.